0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Penny Lane podcast. Today, we've got a fantastic show. Evan and Blaine are going to be joined by Jim Dolly, the white coat investor, who's going to talk about managing your money and the path to financial freedom. Make sure you do subscribe to the Penny Lane Podcast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe and turn on notifications. Today's show is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines, Aries, and Pennies going in raw.
1: The stock market is hotter than ever right now, and traders are taking advantage. But what does that mean for the people who still haven't started trading? The market can be a little intimidating at first, but you don't have to be alone in the learning experience. We at the Pennies Going In Raw podcast are here to help you. I'm Dan, and with my co-host Hugh Henney, we make the stock market a fun but informative experience for our listeners. We offer knowledge for all levels of traders, from beginners to those who do it full-time. On PGIR, we discuss up-to-date news about the stock market and interview other traders who all started out just like us and made it big. You'll hear from Hugh and other multi-millionaire traders, founders and CEOs of companies, FinTwit superstars, and even professional athletes. Have you ever thought about investing your hard-earned cash but don't know where to start? Do you have money just sitting in your savings account collecting dust? We were all there once too. Listen to Penny's Going In Raw on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, Jim. Welcome to the Penny Lane Podcast.
1: Thank you. appreciate you having me on.
2: Oh, we're thrilled. We're thrilled. And our co-host today is, you guys know him as Champagne Shark, one of our favorite co-hosts, also Evan. And for the first time ever on the podcast, we have two doctors.
0: We're really doing it.
2: This really is very exciting. Gig. It's very exciting. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Evan, are you excited?
0: I am because okay. So that I I did warn Blaine that uh, there's no way that I'm gonna be able to get through this and not not be a fanboy <laughs> because uh, in 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 our world. You're a very big deal. Let's just <laughs> call it what it is. You're one of the OGs of uh, writing financial literature for specifically for physicians. So, um, I think your book, uh, "The White Coat Investor," originally came out, I think, in 2014. Is that correct?
3: That's right. That's the first book. I uh, was out in 2014. I now have four. The most recent one just came out a week ago. So, yes, oh, I know.
2: Congratulations.
0: Yes. You have uh, you have a great series that you've built on it. And um, you know, I actually had to I had to go back as soon as I you know, I heard that you were gonna be coming on, I'm like, Oh great, I gotta go back and look through my old copy. And I definitely I'm one hundred percent positive I gave it away to some sad intern who just <laughs> <laughs> needed needed some ray of hope, you know. So Perfect. that's uh, the best I do,
3: thing you can do with it. So <laughs> I appreciate I have, you doing have, that.
0: Hey, I did get an electronic copy now, so I'm not going to lose that one. That one's going to stay with me. Um, but you it really was your your book was really the, the first book that I ever had any introduction to the financial world and how things could possibly work. And so this was, I mean, eight years ago because you had you had a website before and then that kind of snowballed into into the book and the series now. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's basically it. All, all the blog readers were telling me, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. And and they were right. I needed to write that book. <laughs> so it's interesting. There's a lot of people that, uh, that won't read a blog, but they will pick up a book. Or if you hand them a book, they'll read it. And the other interesting thing about publishing a book, even if the book's no good, even if you self-publish it, people view you as an expert by having <sighs> written a book. Uh, which, which surprised me. I'm like, I've been talking about this stuff for years. Have you read my blog? It's way better than the book, but the book is what really made people feel like I was an expert, which I found interesting, but that's just the way books are, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's concrete. It's in your hand. Like you wrote something that's good enough that they wanted to put it in print. So that's, you know, that's obviously something that I don't do on the regular basis, but you've done it four times now. So that's fantastic. Uh, would you mind? Would you mind just sharing with like our listeners kind of what your whole backstory is and how you got to where you are right now?
3: Sure. Um, basically, when I went away to college and I went to medical school, I had no interest at all in finances. Uh, I was a biology major, molecular biology, and um, in medicine. You know, I was interested in climbing and skiing and medicine. You know, I wasn't interested in finance. I wasn't interested in business or investing or anything like that. Um, but about halfway through residency, I started to realize. That every time I'd interacted with a financial professional, it had ended badly for me. Whether it was an insurance agent, or a financial advisor, or an appraiser, or a mortgage lender, or a recruiter, whatever. I always got the short end of the stick. And I started telling myself, if you don't figure this stuff out, this is just going to keep happening your whole career. Because these people are actually targeting you. And so I did. I embarked on kind of a self-study process. I started reading books and blogs and participating on internet forums. And after a few years, realized I was teaching a lot more than I was learning. And, uh, and I also realized nobody's teaching this stuff to doctors. Nobody's out there doing it. And, uh, and I can. I know how to do this. So, so I started a blog, The White Coat Investor, in 2011. And it was a business from day one. Somehow I got infatuated with the idea of passive income. Not that any of the money I ever made from the blog was passive, but that was my idea. And so I put ads on it on on the first week. Um, didn't make money for years, but I had <laughs> ads up there. and uh, And, you know, it snowballed from there. People picked it up, and because it was important information, and I was able to bridge that gap between finance and medicine, and really bring those two fields of study together for people, it it really took off. And uh, from there, it's just been an opportunity to serve a lot of very good people um, that are sick of being taken advantage of, and just need somebody to kind of, they're smart people, they just don't realize the best way to learn this stuff. And so I try to try to do that for them in whatever format they prefer and we've gone from blogging to podcasting to video casting to online courses and books and live conferences and whatever whatever format you like it in we're trying to give you this information in that format that's
0: excellent and one of the things that i i was discussing with with blaine about my kind of just thoughts about um you know so the name of your company is you know it's a white coat investor it's definitely targeted towards physicians um but kind of the the fact that the, the student loan kind of crisis has really absolutely blossomed. It's ballooned into this big problem that's kind of hanging over, not just, you know, it's not just people who have to go to school for like eight years to become a doctor. We're talking about people who are just trying to, you know, even just go to a state school to get a four year you know degree. And people are coming out with these massive amounts of debt in, you know, uh, numbers that they've never probably even fathomed. And just trying to figure out a way to navigate that and be financially successful going forward. Because, I mean, if you're coming out of any sort of higher education and you didn't have, you know, either like scholarships uh, or somebody was paying for you, like you have to you're starting in a hole. You have to dig your way out. And actually on your podcast, you have a great series and it's just called Back to Broke. And like (laughs) the fact that you can celebrate getting back to broke and that means like something positive. I think that a lot of people probably, you know, identify that in a much broader sense than just kind of the medical field.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it applies to to everybody, you know. Um, 95% of personal finance and investing is the same for everyone. And uh, the other 5%, most of it applies to just about any high-income professional, whether it's law or business or uh, medicine or dentistry or veterinary medicine or whatever, you know. Uh, only about 1% of it's truly physician-specific, and that's reflected in our readership and, uh, you know, those listening to our podcast. You know, it's only about 70% physicians. You know, it's a good chunk of dentists and trainees, but there's still 10 or 15% of people that aren't in any sort of medical field whatsoever, uh, just because the information is helpful. You know, it's far more um, tack-bracket-specific than it is profession-specific, I suppose. Um, And, you know, obviously I'm a doc and and I can write best to docs. But, you know, the truth is 95% of it's the same for everybody. And it is a crisis these days. And it's not entirely clear what the right thing is. The right thing is getting tuition down. um, Mm -hmm. But that's much harder to force than it is to come up with forgiveness plans and lower interest plans and all these other plans the government's come up with. Refinancing, you know, from some of the private companies. But nobody's really addressing the real concern, which is that tuition is way too high compared to what you're making coming out with these degrees. And far too many people are going to college and grad school without actually running the numbers to make sure it's a good investment. It's just not a good investment to borrow $100,000 for a degree that's going to allow you to get a job that pays $35,000 a year. It wasn't a good investment. And until people are willing to recognize that and say the quiet part out loud, I think we're going to have some trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, we've we're really in kind of just since we're talking about, you know, student student loans, we're in a weird kind of place right now. You know, it's uh, definitely a unique situation where we've had, you know, loans have been on deferment since kind of since, you know, COVID started, we're not getting any interest, uh, not accruing interest. You don't have to uh, make any payments. Um, So people are sitting with these, you know, these lumps of of government loans, um, which most of them are kind of like this mid kind of upper tier rate. So what have have you seen to be some successful strategies for people to take advantage of this kind of like lull, lame duck period that we're dealing with right now?
3: Well, I mean, the main strategy is people are just sitting on their loans, you know, Um, and it's hard to blame them, right? You don't have to make payments and the interest rate is zero, right? It's hard to get excited about paying them down, especially with inflation at eight or 9%. So carrying the loans right now as far as your federal loans go is almost surely the right move. It might not be the right move, right? Because if you refinance loans now and get 3 or 4% or a few months ago and got even better and you might not be able to refinance later except at 4 or 5 or 6%, you might have been better off refinancing them if you're going to drag them out for a long time. But I think probably the best thing to do is just sit on them for now okay. and see how it goes. For a couple of reasons. One I mean, this thing's been extended now for over two years, two and a half years. I did not think it was going to be extended more than six months. So every time they've extended it up until this last one, it surprised me. I didn't think they would. At this point, I I think it's probably going to be extended at least through the election, just for political reasons. Yeah. And so I think most people are kind of counting on that, that it's probably going to be extended through the election. And the cynic in me sees it as a vote-buying mechanism. But right, right, I suspect at that point you're probably going to have to start making payments again, and you're probably going to have to pay interest on your loans again. Um, so that's that's probably the best thing to be doing with your federal loans. On the other hand, if you have any private loans, if you have already refinanced loans, you know, the strategy is to refinance early and often. Every time you can get a lower rate, you ought to refinance them. If you go through the links on our website that we've negotiated with all these lenders, you get cash back, too. So not only do you get a lower interest rate, you get a few hundred dollars in cash in your pocket. So it's a no-brainer. Just keep refinancing, refinancing, refinancing as you're paying them off. Your debt-to-income ratio is getting better. Your credit score is probably getting better. You're qualifying for better rates. Just keep refinancing those as you're paying them off. Um, But the federal loans, you know, most people are sitting on them. Eventually, though, you're going to have to go for one of two plans, right? This whole idea that they're all going to be forgiven for a doctor making $250,000 a year is probably folly, Yeah. right? Nobody is seriously talking about wiping out your loans. You know, President Biden's throwing out a $10,000 figure out there, right? $10,000 doesn't move the needle, when you owe $250,000, it doesn't move the needle. So don't be sitting there going, Biden's going to save me from my loans, right? It's not going to happen. Um, even that 10000 or the $50,000 that Senator Warren keeps talking about is probably going to be um, decreased or uh, eliminated for those with high incomes. You know, if you're making uh, an attending physician salary, you may not qualify for any forgiveness at all. So eventually, you're going to be stuck with two options. Option number one is working for a nonprofit, a 501C, being a direct employee of 501C3 and making payments for 10 years, right? This is the public service loan forgiveness program. Three years of residency count, a couple more years of fellowship count, then you stay on as faculty for five years. Boom. Loans are gone. You owe no taxes on them. It's a great way to get rid of your federal loans. Uh, Everybody who has a federal loan program who would even consider working for the VA or working in an academic center or being the employee of a nonprofit hospital, um, a community health center, whatever, should consider that as a good way to get rid of their uh, public loans. For the rest of us, uh, the option is to pay them back. And that is not nearly as hard as people think it is. Uh, the secret four words I give people that teaches them how to do this is live like a resident, right? And the idea is that you come out of residency, you're used to living on fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, and now all of a sudden you're making two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars. Yes, you're going to pay more in taxes. You're going to pay more in taxes than you used to make. But even after that, the difference. Is going to be a hundred 150 two hundred thousand dollars and if you are throwing ten or fifteen thousand dollars a month at your student loans I assure you they go away very quickly you can wipe out two or three hundred thousand dollars in loans very quickly at ten thousand dollars a month and then you can wipe them out in in two or three years coming out of residency and be free you can have medical school paid for and it really is a great option it's hard for people to do it. For whatever reason and it's not because they can't do math it's just that they you know tend to do what's normal which is to buy a big mortgage and a couple of tesla payments and you know and start living the high life before you've taken care of business so i just try to get doctors to pause for a second as they come out of residency and use that newfound income to build some wealth
0: yeah that's i mean it's definitely something that so as i'm, I'm finishing i'm in my last year of my radiology residency so um, coming out and then seeing like contracts that are, you know, numbers that are something they're literally inconceivable like things that you (laughs) i mean you could never imagine it's like more money than you've ever made
3: it's like monopoly money it's the same way as when you're signing for loans in medical school right it's monopoly money (laughs) exactly
0: (laughs) um but i think you know understanding you know that there's a a lot of you know responsibility that comes with that you know if you have other people that are going to be depending on you and you need need to you know try to either like save for yourself save for a house save for you know college for your kids save for anything um you know having a safety a safety net something that you can fall back on instead of just you know trying to live whatever lifestyle you know you think you're supposed to be living and i think a lot a lot of people can very very easily get caught up in that just by hopping on instagram or facebook you can see what you know what the you know your best friends from 20 years ago are doing and now they're living some crazy great life so does that mean that you have to too i mean we've lived uh you know pretty Pretty modest lives in in residencies. You can tell I have a very nice fireplace. It's very warm back here, keeping me nice and warm. <laughs> Thank you, YouTube, for that. Uh, but you know, I think that you need to try to make some concessions and understand that, like you don't you don't have to be spending what you're what you're earning. Um, and you know, what do you think uh, people should be trying to trying to save of their uh, daily you know or monthly you know take home? What do you think?
3: Yeah. Well, what I tell attending physicians. Is I tell them, it's 20% for retirement, 20% of your gross pay. So if you're earning $300,000 a year, that's $60,000 a year that needs to be going toward retirement. That's just retirement. That's not paying off your student loans. That's not saving up for your kid's college. That's not saving up for your Ferrari, right? That's just retirement, okay? And then you got to assume that you're going to be paying something like 20 to 30% of your money in taxes. So that leaves you 50% to spend. And that's what you can spend. Now, in the first few years, this live like a resident period, I tell people to do this for two to five years out of residency. I want you to spend less than that 50%. Right? I want you to spend something more like what you spent in residency. Give yourself a little raise, right? Give yourself a 50% raise when you come out. But try to keep it similar to how you were living in residency and use that money to take care of business. And then what that will do is that will jumpstart your track to financial freedom. Not only will you realize I'm not what I drive, I don't have to live the lifestyle society expects from me, but you will learn what you really care about. And you'll spend your money on that. And you'll save the rest. And, uh, and what that will do is just open all kinds of options for you. Because I can tell you this, if you talk to a mid-career radiologist, almost all of them want to be working less, and they want to be working less at night. And uh, when you're just coming out, you're like, all right, all this money, this is great. But you don't realize that you don't want to be working as hard as you are working now 10 years from now. And so you kind of got to take care of business in that first 10 years, you know. Um, And uh, because at that point, you're probably going to be earning less money. You know, quite frankly, all of us in shift-based specialties, whether it's radiology or emergency medicine or hospitalists or anesthesiologists, you know, inflation adjusted, it's going to be less money. Because you're not going to want to work as hard mm-hmm. uh, and that's not a reflection on you it's just a reflection of the way people are you know and so you got to plan for that from the beginning there's nothing sadder than seeing a 68 year old hospitalist still working 18 night shifts a month Oof. you know there's only one reason somebody's doing that at 68 and it's usually because they're on their third marriage and they've got a whole bunch of payments you know yeah. um, so you don't want to be in that situation yeah
2: my uh, grandfather was a ER doctor and worked until he was
3: 78. Wow, that's awesome. Really that's loved awesome. it.
2: Really loved yeah, it. Yeah, he
3: must have really liked <laughs> yeah. it. I'll bet he wasn't working night shifts till he was 78.
2: <laughs> no, <though. laughs> no, I mean he had a fairly choice <laughs> whatever he wanted yeah. to do. But anyway, yeah. let's do pause here for a quick commercial break. This episode is sponsored by Aries, the newest trading broker offering both mobile and desktop trading. The app is built for retail traders by retail traders, and they welcome user feedback. Do you ever nail the entry on a trade but can't get filled? You won't need to worry about that anymore because they are a self clearing brokerage direct to exchange with TradeStation, and they are much faster than other brokerages that route through a clearinghouse. Aries is a multi asset platform. You are able to trade stocks, options, futures, index options, crypto, and micros. You are also able to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies. Lastly, earn up to 5% interest on eligible crypto assets with no lockups. Aries has partners and offers many free tools such as advanced charting, trading view with unlimited charting and indicators, free options flow, dark pool data, and many more tools on their roadmap to come. This is on average a $50 to $100 per month value, all for free. Finally, you can withdraw and deposit actual crypto and transfer to the U.S. dollar and use it to trade any trading assets offered. Aries is the first brokerage to offer this. Please click the link in our bio or go to www.tradearies.com slash penny lane to sign up for an account today.
0: Irrational exuberance? When it comes to killer wine at drastically low prices, 30 to 70% off retail and free shipping, we live for that here at Last Bottle Wines. Whether you went long or short on GameStop, You'll need a glass of something terrifically tasty, and we've got the goods. Last Bottle is a daily wine site based in Napa, California. One wine every day at black swan event prices, usually 30 to 70% off, until poof, it's gone. Whether you're a pound the table type, think ultra crisp, quaffable Sauvignon Blanc, or a dividend aristocrat, burgundy, or Napa Cab, there simply is no better place to buy wine on the web and they always have free shipping. Last Bottle has a deal just for Penny Lane listeners. Use promo code PENNY10 to save 10% on your next order with Last Bottle. The code is good for one order and one order only.
2: Okay, we're back. Um Jim, I wanted to ask you what percentage of your time is based working in medicine versus working, you know, on your podcast, on your blog, on that business.
3: Well, I'm glad you asked it that way, instead of what percentage of my time am I spending on trips and floating rivers and (laughs) things like that, because that might not have been as, uh, uh, have reflected as well on me. Uh, I'm certainly spending a lot of time pretending I'm retired uh, these days. I keep telling my kids I'm retired. Uh, They don't really believe me because they see me working still. But um, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to build this ideal life. You know, if if you make a Venn diagram with your ideal life on one side and your current life on the other side. And then if you will work hard at it over a few years, you can meld those two circles so they overlap a lot. and That's what I've been trying to do in the last five years. Um, And so I'm trying to not have to say no to anything that's really fun. And what that means is I spend a lot of time having fun. Um, you know, I, 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 if I listed off the trips and fun stuff I've done the last couple of months, it would just come across as a humble brag, but of the time I'm still working, it's about 50, 50, about 50% medicine and about 50% on the white coat investor. Now, currently I'm at about 0.4 FTEs in medicine. And with the help we've hired at the White Coat Investor, that's probably about what I work at White Coat Investor as well. Maybe a little more. I might be working more than that. It's probably a full-time job between the two of them. Um, but uh, but it's a good balance for me, and it's something that uh, you know I've worked toward over years. Um, you know, the line I use a lot is uh, when people ask me, are you going on vacation again? And I tell them, it's not a vacation. This is a lifestyle. I actually set my life up this way on purpose, and I did. You know a few years ago i still love medicine i like helping doctors and and others to not do dumb stuff with their money and i found a way to do both of those and still be able to to do all the fun stuff and trips and spend time with my kids that i'd like to do and to me that's what success is that's
2: amazing that's amazing so uh podcast organization question how how many podcasts do you record before you release them, or like in the can prior to releasing them, and do you do those all in a schedule? It's a personal, personal question. <laughs> I want to know the answer uh, to
3: <laughs> This highly varies for us. Now we publish eight to nine podcasts a month, mm-hmm. right? This two mm-hmm. week the milestones to millionaire podcast on Mondays, and the regular white coat investor podcast on Thursdays. Um, and at times we might be recording a podcast as much as two months out. Okay. And at other times, we might only be recording a podcast podcast a week to 10 days out. We don't tend to do it any closer than that because we're not doing the editing. Yeah. And when I say we, I'm talking about me and Cindy, the podcast producer. We send it off to somebody else to do the editing and the transcript and to write the show notes and all that. And we have to give them time to do right. that. Um, but we often batch them. You know, we may record four or five podcasts in a day. Okay. That's not unusual for us at all um and so we probably in any given month we probably have three podcast recording days so we'll record eight or nine podcasts over the course of three days during a month it's pretty typical for us
2: i feel like we're on this podcast struggling a little bit with that and people are keep saying like you fail to the quality of your systems or whatever and looking for a better system of making sure that we're organized in that way so impressive Anyway, thanks for answering. Yeah, I,
3: I, I have to give all the credit to Cindy, our podcast producer on that. When we decided we were going to start a podcast, I basically turned to her and said, we're going to do a podcast. I'm going to talk into a microphone. You're going to do everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so if there's a system, the system is Cindy. So she's done a fantastic job with cool,
2: it. Cool, cool. Um, some more podcast questions. Did you use, like, you have a very highly ranked podcast, which I am sure comes down to the quality of content, the quality of production, and the number of people who are interested in what you are saying. Is that something that you built into over time or was your blog audience and book audience kind of like ravenous for this new way of teaching information?
3: Well, I mean, there's no substitute for for good content. If you don't have good content, nobody's going to stick around very long. So you obviously have to have good content. But the truth is, in any sort of online entrepreneurship, online endeavor, you only have to build an audience once, right? Whether you build it on Instagram, whether you build it on a blog, whether you build it on a podcast, you only have to build it once. And then every time you start something else new, you've already got a nucleus of people there, right? So we decided a few years ago we were going to have a Facebook group, right? We already had a blog and a podcast and, you know, YouTube channel and all this stuff. We decided we're going to have a Facebook group. Well, in less than a year, we had 30,000 people in the Facebook group without even trying. You know, I I told Michelle, she's our social media person, when we started the Facebook group. I'm like, in a year from now, we're going to have 30,000 people in this group. And she's like, yeah, right. And I'm like, watch, we will, because this is basically what's happened with every other audience. And so it's a little bit cheating to start a podcast when you already have a popular blog Mm -hmm. because it's going to be popular from the beginning. Um, But, you know, in the end, people only stick around if it's good. So hopefully we're putting out a good product. And we've certainly put a lot of effort into improving it, both from, you know, the show notes and the sound quality and video quality, as well as the content on there and the guests we bring on. So it's not without significant effort from all of us to, to improve it as it goes. But but, yeah, you're definitely cheating. If you've already got some sort of an audience, it's way easier to, to transition it to another medium.
2: Yeah, great. Uh, very true. Although, although the
3: interesting, interesting thing about it is a lot of people do not do more than one or two mediums. You know? Like our whole Facebook group, there's a whole bunch of people in there that have never read the blog which I always find amazing that they're just missing out on like basic information. We've covered many, many times, you know, and it can be the same way as well. If you actually survey people, a lot of people listen to the podcast, don't read the books or don't, you know, watch the YouTube channel. People are very siloed in each of the mediums, which is good because I can do the same material in each one. and they'll <laughs> yeah.
0: all new, So I love that. That's great. That's good. That's good. Um, did you have any more podcasting questions, Blaine? We were on the kick.
2: Yeah. No, I'm not sure that all our listeners are into podcasting as much as I am. So let's let's transition back to money, which I know everyone's interested in.
0: Uh, uh, just a very easy question. How do you know when you need help when you need help with your finances? When do you have to go outside and you know you have to pay somebody? to come in and whether it's just something as easy as doing your taxes or even hiring a financial advisor um, or like a tax strategist, which I learned is a totally different thing. Like w- when do you, you find out that you need to reach out and, and you know, get a little bit of advice and some guidance?
3: Uh, you know, I think there's different trigger for all of us. Um, I would not assume that you can't do anything yourself. I think that's wrong right I think just about anybody can do some things themselves and the more you learn about what you can do yourself and become a little bit of a hobbyist the better off you will be um, there is no better hobby out there no better paying hobby anyway than taking care of your own financial chores whether it's managing your investments or doing your own financial planning uh, preparing your own taxes etc all these things pay better than practicing medicine quite honestly Right. If I turned around and looked at what it would cost me to have somebody else manage my portfolio, I mean, they might be making thousands of dollars an hour Mm -hmm. compared to what I'm doing. If they just do what I'm doing in the portfolio, but charge me standard fees, I mean, they'd be making a killing. You know, it's a great use of my time. Yeah. Um, And and that's the way it is, even for many highly paid people. So don't feel like you can't learn it. Don't feel like there's not a return on your investment there to learning this stuff if you want to. Um, but you shouldn't feel like you have to, right? There are good people out there, and my mantra when hiring help is good advice at a fair price. So for a lot of people, they don't know what a fair price is. You know, I had a, a family member, a, a relative, who just recently, relatively late in life, realized what asset under management fee means and multiplied those fees by the size of the portfolio and was astounded to discover that he had been paying... Six, eight times the going rate for financial services. You know, the fair price is a four-figure amount. You should be paying somebody to manage your money between two and ten thousand dollars a year. That's the going rate. People will do it for that. And so, if someone is trying to charge you thirty-five thousand dollars a year to manage your money, they're overcharging you. No matter how it is, whether it's a flat fee, whether it's uh, you know an hourly rate, whether it is you know uh, an annual. Uh, subscription amount, whether it's commissions, whether it's uh, an asset under management fee, which is what it usually is when it gets that high, uh, you're paying too much. You're being ripped off. So the fair price is relatively easy to do. The good advice is harder because you have to know a little bit yourself to make sure you're getting good advice. Um, But if you have concerns, if you have questions, um, if you're like, you know, I need this done and this is out of my expertise, go hire help. There are good people out there. If you're not sure where to find them, we keep recommended lists on the White Coat Investor page for that reason. Um, And, uh, you know, whether it's an estate planner or whether it's, you know, a tax preparer or whatever, um, you know, go hire that help. It's going to be expensive, right? But it's probably more expensive not to get it and to have it done wrong. Um, So don't feel bad about that. Just try to learn from them as you go. And uh, recognize those things you want to do and can do yourself and those things you want don't want to do and or, or can't do, and you're going to have to pay those out. Um, but it's, But it's okay to use a mix, right? Just because you hire somebody to give you advice for a few hours about designing your portfolio doesn't mean you have to hire them to actually implement it or to manage it long-term, mm-hmm. right? You can hire them to design it and implement it, and then you can manage it long-term, for instance. You can check back in with them once a year for a couple of hours. That only may only cost you three or 400 bucks instead of three or 4,000 bucks if they were managing it themselves. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of options there. It's not just either or.
0: Yeah, I think my kind of my approach was I definitely tried to educate myself as much as possible um, in, in med school and residency time is the the issue right time having enough time to be able to do everything and dive into you know every little nook and cranny because the financial system is so complex and there's so many different vehicles whether you're talking about like llcs or s corps and like different investment vehicles where you have hsas and 401ks and roth iras i mean it's just like letter soup what is this it's insanity and understanding like what you can take advantage of um in your own setting because, you know, you're not going to qualify for everything. You might make too much that you're going to be excluded from something or you're going to, you know, you're going to make too little or not be able to take advantage. So uh, I think having like some sort of baseline knowledge is just so important um, just so you can understand at least, you know, what kind of verbiage and stuff is, is being used. And that's when I really started getting into, you know, um, kind of went down the, the white coat investor rabbit hole. and. Kind of started my my education in in the market, but you have to you know see see what the trade off and, is. And
3: looking back, you pr- you probably can't now imagine there was a time where you didn't know what a Roth IRA oh, yeah. was or what disability insurance yeah, was. Yeah, seems right? you're looking back, you're like, of course, I've always known this stuff. But at some point, everybody has to yeah. Learn. But the interesting thing about a lot of those chores is a lot of them you only have to do once, right? You only have to open a Roth IRA once, you know, you only have to buy disability insurance once or term life insurance once, you only have to start your S Corp once, you know. Uh, All these chores, a lot of them are not ongoing chores and yet so often we pay for them with ongoing fees. And so you ought to be careful not to do that. If you just need help getting things set up, we'll try to do that with a one-time fee rather than a, a fee that you pay every year. You know, that's the whole reason Netflix is on a subscription model. You know, you don't want necessarily your financial advice on a subscription model.
0: Um, what do you think about, uh, you know, when is the right time for, for somebody to finally buy a home? Because I'm 32 years old and I'm like, I should probably buy a home it's probably time to do that but we've i mean we've had such a at least you know our generation has been renting for so long it's just become the almost the norm um especially if you're in like a a major city live in downtown there's absolutely no way i mean we've just been priced out of the market but you know i think that other than the housing market being very high i think that you know our our generation is finally coming into you know some house buying money where you've probably been in, you know, whatever field you've been in for, you know, several years, you're getting established. Um, So what what are things that you should be looking for? Like what percentage, like how much of a house do I need with how much money I make? Mm -hmm. Which seems like such a basic question, but I don't know.
3: Yeah, well, here's one piece of advice, right? The amount of house you need and the amount of money you make are not related whatsoever, right. right? You might need a house that you can't afford and you might need dramatically less house than you can afford. Those two numbers should not be equated. I often get this question from people, what, what percentage of money should I spend on housing, right? But nobody ever asked me what percentage of money should I spend on health insurance or what percentage of my income should I spend on groceries, right? Well, they are what they yeah. are. Right. And if you can afford it, you should buy it. If you can't, you can't. But as far as when to buy a house, here's the truth. When your financial, not your financial, when your family situation, your personal situation is stable and your professional situation is stable, meaning your job likes you and you like your job, you're going to be there for a while. You're not about to have twins. You're not about to get married. You're not about to get divorced. Right. That's the time to buy a house because the key to making a house purchase work out most of the time, and I'm not talking about the last 24 months when housing has just gone nuts in every city in this country. I'm talking most of the time, right? Obviously, anything you bought two years ago has worked out well for you, but most of the time you need to be in the house for about five years for it to work out better than renting for you and the reason why is because you need it to appreciate enough to cover the transaction costs of getting into the house and getting out of the house and those transaction costs on average are about 15 percent of the value of the house It's about 5 percent to get in it's about 10 percent to get out and it might be a little more it might be a little less but that's a good rule of thumb and so you need a house to appreciate 15 percent while you're in it that's about what it takes for you to break even and at about 3 percent a year that's about five years. And so, you know, if you're in a stable enough situation that you don't think anything significant is gonna change significantly enough that you have to change housing in the next five years, go ahead and buy. And that's, you know, whether you have the money or not when you're a doc, because you can go get a doctor mortgage to buy it. You know, if you got a better use for your money to pay off student loans or to max out retirement accounts or, or buy a real estate investment or whatever this better use of your money is, Go ahead and do that. Use a doctor mortgage loan, but don't use a doctor mortgage loan to buy a house when you don't have a stable personal life, when you don't have a stable professional life. Uh, That's just, you know, somebody, you know, finding a way to allow you to do something maybe shouldn't be doing in the first place. That's great advice.
0: I feel like that applies to anybody. Just make sure your professional and your personal life are okay. And, um, you know, I think that's, it actually kind of echoes what my, my fiance said, she's like, she's like, we don't need this, the market, like the housing market to dictate our lives. Like, this is what we probably like the most logical next step for us is to buy a house. We're going to be here for a while. Like, so just do it. And I guess that that's the right Mm -hmm. answer.
3: Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it works out well with the market and sometimes it don't, it don't, (laughs) it doesn't. Uh, so, you know, in 2006, that was the right time professionally and personally for me to buy a house. Maybe, I was only military for four years. It wasn't quite five. So we bought a house. It didn't work out great. Nine years later, I sold it for a loss, yep. right? Um, but it was fine. We could afford that loss. It wasn't that expensive of a house. It wasn't that big of a loss. No big deal. Um, and then in 2010, we bought another house. Again, stable personal, stable professional situation. I've been in that for 12 years. And it has worked out spectacularly well, right? I mean, this house is worth, I don't know, three times what it was when I bought it. And that's not including the renovation we did to it. Um, You know, and so eventually this is going to work out well. Because eventually you're going to spend some, you're going to be someplace longer than five years. And that's when buying a house really works out well. You know, at this point, this house has been paid off now for four or five years. You know, basically, you know, the dividends this investment pays me is saved rent right? I'm not making mortgage payments. I'm not making rent payments. It's a great financial move for me to own this house. And, uh, and that's the situation you want to be in eventually.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. My next question is really important. It's the next place you want to vacation to,
3: <laughs> you know, um, it's not a vacation. It's a lifestyle. Number one, <laughs> I my like next trip, I'm <laughs> taking that with me. Yeah. But <laughs> my, my next trip is actually Lake Powell next week. So I'm going canyoneering. So that's cool. I guess that's where I want to go. Because that's what I've scheduled. But I just got back from uh, a couple of trips to Central America this spring. I went to uh, Roatan to go diving with my daughter and my wife. And then I did a canyoning trip in Costa Rica with a brother-in-law and, and a friend. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great trips out there. And there's no shortage. If you actually start sitting back and, and you have the money and the time to do it, there's a lifetime of travel out there. Um, and uh, you'll have to choose. You know, and it's whatever you're interested in and whatever you haven't done before. And, and it's always a great experience. So is, before is, we go no, ahead,
2: sorry, before we started, you mentioned skiing. Are you, you're a big skier?
3: Yeah, we spend a lot of time skiing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I live at the the base of the Wasatch Mountains here. And so it's just a few miles up to Alta and Snowbird, which are, you know, pretty world class ski resorts, mm-hmm. but we also ski in the back country and, and occasionally take a little bit more exotic trip to Canada. <gasps>
2: We're in Canada, you know. Big well, fans. We usually,
3: we usually ski on the west side of the Canadian Rockies. Cool. So, a place called the place called the Selkirks.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. Do you ever go to Deer Valley?
3: Sometimes go to Deer Valley. Deer Valley is a great place to go if you're an intermediate skier and you're coming from outside of Utah. <laughs>
2: Perfect. That Especially I'm...
3: if you like if you like groomed <laughs> runs. Great place to go.
2: It but is you, it... my favorite place for those reasons like nice big blue green run or i mean wait groomed blue runs i love them so family i love that there's no snowboarders my husband uh worked for a long time in jackson hole and the first time we went out he was like well this could not bore me more and i was like (laughs) welcome to marriage
3: Yeah, if you are a powder hound that lives in Salt Lake City, you tend to ski on the west side of the Wasatch. But but the guests that come in and fly in and need a place to stay and want some good restaurants and some entertainment, they tend to go to Park City or Deer Valley.
2: Yeah. Anyway, lucky you to have so much amazing skiing nearby.
3: Yeah, if only we could get it to snow. It's been a bit of a drought these last few years.
2: Yeah, we went to Big Sky this year, and you could see, like, mud was coming. It was just ice and mud, ice and mud.
3: Yep. Yeah, you know, we got some real problems in the west. So we, uh, uh, nobody in the neighborhoods turned on their sprinklers yet. We're well into May, so we're trying to save water and keep our reservoirs full, and you know, keep water in the rivers.
0: I'll ask you another financial question because I don't <laughs> ski well. Um, when, when you <laughs> when you started planning out and decided like to go down this kind of road and just first it was just educational for your own purpose, right? To try to figure that out how far were you planning out like what was your timeline vision that you were setting for yourself
3: well uh, we planned it all the way to financial independence with our first written financial plan and we were going to hit that at age 51. so i'm 47 now so i got four years left on that plan i guess but we've been financially independent now for about four years so we obviously hit it early congratulations Um, but uh, i also ran those numbers based on what i expected to be making when i came out of the military and uh, and you know, thankfully, physician incomes have done pretty well the last ten or fifteen years. And so, I actually never made that little. And so, I made a, made more money than I ever expected to. And that helped speed us along to uh, financial independence. But yeah, we planned out the whole thing.
0: How, how do how do you define <laughs> yeah. financial independence? What does that mean to you?
3: It simply means I don't have to work for money. So, if the white coat investor burned to the ground yesterday, I don't know how you burn a website <laughs> to the ground, but if, if it burned to the ground. And, uh, and I was thrown out of medicine, um, I don't need to work again. That's financial independence. Man. So it's pretty straightforward definition. Um, determining how much you need to never work again can be tricky for some people. Probably the most commonly used definition is 25 times your annual spending. So if you spend $100,000 a year, that's about $2.5 million you need saved up. you spend two hundred thousand dollars a year that's about five million dollars you need saved up and so that's that's a good rule of thumb you know when you get into the weeds you'll you'll see lots of people argue with that a little bit and and with good reason sometimes and uh, but that's that's the basic rule of thumb of approximately how much you need You either need some source of income that is very guaranteed and that you don't have to work for or you need that amount of assets to produce that much income
0: Yeah. I do, I do dream of one day just retiring on dividends <laughs> and getting my quarterly you know, deposit and just having the greatest life in the world. That's the goal, dividend life. you so
3: good at Just learning this stuff early on though, I mean, it's like a superpower, right? If you've got financial literacy and a little bit of financial discipline, those are very rare in our world. And if you combine those two things with a high income, Really, you're not very far away from financial independence. It might feel like it because you're, you know, coming out of residency and you've still got a negative net worth. But I tell you what, that net worth number moves very quickly when you're really working at it and tracking it. And you might be surprised just how short this period of time is from broke to literally you never have to work again. You know, that period of time for many doctors paying attention to this stuff can be less than 10 or 15 years. Wow.
0: Yeah. That, That
3: sounds great to me. (laughs) <laughs> um cannot well and, and then it's not that i want you to leave medicine right, uh, right. but the ability to leave medicine right, makes medicine way more enjoyable right i mean it's like a well-paid hobby now when i go into the hospital to see my friends and try to help a few people yeah mm-hmm. it's way more fun than feeling like i got to do whatever the administrator wants me to do that day mm-hmm.
2: yeah. and oh, you're man. just are you're an er doctor yes that's correct fascinating
3: Yep. Why yeah, did I'm, I'm you in work working shifts? Why did so.
2: you go down that path?
3: You know, um it's interesting in medical school, you bounce around from one specialty to another. I thought it was going to be a family doc when I started med- medical school, and then I looked at everything, you know, everything seemed interesting. At one point, I thought neurology was the best thing ever, and then I went to neurology clinic and I'm like this is not for me. <laughs> um, and I think probably most people who end up in emergency medicine feel the same way. Um, it was like the opposite of the practice I wanted, but um, you know, I think we had a lunch and learn. Somebody came in and talked about their life and what they do with their professionally and outside of their life. And I'm like, that's my person right there. That, that's what I want. I want to have that sort of a life. And that sounds really interesting. And I found my tribe, you know. And I think for a lot of people in medicine, that's the way it is. They just fall into a specialty, and it's obvious to them. Um, but a lot of other people, they struggle. You know, it's like, I don't know if I want to do You know dermatology or nephrology or you know anesthesiology or emergency medicine or whatever and the truth is if it's that hard to decide you'll probably be happy in both of them quite honestly you know Um, whereas my second choice was a distant second choice and it's probably a really good thing I didn't end up there Uh, I my second choice was OBGYN and looking back I don't think I would have been that happy as a gynecologist it was really interesting medicine but I just wanted, I had too many other interests outside of medicine for something that can be so consuming professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: was actually do the you... exact same. I, w- I was going to do uh, i would have done OBGYN. I love the medicine. I think it's, it's fantastic, yeah. but I'm like, man, their hours are insane.
2: Insane. <laughs>
0: insane.
3: Yeah. Um Yeah. Especially if you're doing a full OB practice. <sighs> Yeah. Hats off to all of you OBs out there. Anybody listening to this as an OB? Totally impressed with what you do. Totally. Thank you so much for doing I that. I would
2: like to personally thank my OB, who I've been in her office many a time, and it is she can live in there. There is a futon. There is, I mean, <laughs> she's ready to roll all the time. Um, do, is there part of the ever-changing nature of being an ER doctor that is like, extremely
3: fascinating to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's classically, the specialty for those of us with ADD. Sure. Which I probably have, you know, is before anybody was really being diagnosed with it. Um, you know, but three or four of my kids have it. So clearly it's, you know, kind of runs in <laughs> the family a little bit. I don't, I don't like knowing what I'm going to do when I go to work. I don't want to know if it's going to be a busy day or if it's going to be a slow day or if I'm going to have to take care of, you know, a trauma or a stroke or what. I don't want to know. I like not knowing what's coming in the door. I find that interesting. And, of course, there's patterns. You always know you're going to take care of three or four people with chest pain and four or five people with abdominal pain and somebody with, you know, a vaginal bleed and somebody with a headache and somebody that's suicidal on every shift, you know, because that's just the bread and butter of emergency medicine. But the other stuff that you don't know is coming, you know, you ask most emergency docs, they love stuff like foreign body extractions. You know, we think that's interesting. You know, all these stories that people like to hear in cocktail hours. You know, we yeah, yeah. love that stuff. It's it's fun, and uh, we like the people we work with. You know, they're a bunch of adrenaline junkies too. The nurses and the techs and the clerks, and so it, it, much more than any other area of medicine, in my opinion, it, there's a teamwork in the emergency department that I really appreciate. And, um, and, and so we're all on first-name basis. We all sit next to each other. It's not this big, huge hierarchy. It's just everybody working together for the benefit of the patients. And, and I really enjoy that as well. I worried a little bit about not having long-term relationships with patients. Mm-hmm. And uh, you do have some long-term relationships in emergency medicine, but they're not with the patients you necessarily <laughs> want them Sure, with. sure. And uh, and it turned out that that wasn't as important to me as, as I worried it was. And uh, And I've been, I think, fine without it. But uh, it's, it's just a match. You know, everybody has a, has a personality. It's really funny. They make fun of it. They make these funny diagrams in medicine about how to choose a specialty, you know? And if you're, you know, and they're just really funny to go through them. But the stereotypes are pretty true in a lot of ways. You know, there's people in medicine that don't fit this adrenaline or in emergency medicine that don't fit this adrenaline junkie stereotype for sure. But even they'll admit three the quarters majority. Of the majority. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now,
2: how many times have you had a patient who has been thoroughly impaled?
3: <laughs> thoroughly impaled, not very often. The issue is the really bad ones. Only the police see.
2: Okay. They
3: never make it to the medics, much less to the emergency department.
2: On Grey's so. Anatomy, uh... those are the best episodes. <laughs> You've been impaled. You got to get it out. There's a woo. It's fascinating. Yeah. Speaking of ER doctors, one of my very best friends is an ER doctor, and I asked him for a question, and it's fitting <laughs> here just to get us right back right back on the money. He said, Besides spending less and saving more, what is the best advice you can give a two physician household in their early forties with three young kids in private school? and what are the most common pitfalls we should avoid and common mistakes you see among our demographic?
3: Mm. Three words for this couple. Optimize for longevity. Okay, so every time you have to make a decision with your career, with your family, with childcare, etc., cetera, think about what is going to allow me to practice the longest. And what you will do if you will optimize for longevity is most of the time you will make the decision that allows for a better practice, more enjoyable practice, a better lifestyle. And what that will allow you to do is not burn out because the biggest risk to your career is burnout. Mm -hmm. You know, if you survey doctors at any given time, half of them will tell you they're they're so burned out that it is significantly affecting their life. And a, a significant percentage of those will just leave medicine. In fact, when I do surveys of doctors, if I ask them, you know, if I wrote you a $10 million check today, would you go to work tomorrow? And basically, a third of them, if you ask them anonymously, a third of them will say, I'm out of medicine completely. And another 50% or 55% will tell you that I'll cut back. So a lot of us are working either completely or significantly for money mm-hmm. and so i think it's important to to recognize that burnout's a huge threat and you've got to make those decisions during your career that allow you to continue to practice and to enjoy medicine and to be like your dad still practicing at 78 and loving it and you just can't be an emergency doc working 22 nights a month and get to that point
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you
3: will burn out you cannot do it And uh, and you got to recognize that. Talk to people in mid career and ask them, you know, how are you feeling? How do you feel about work? What would be ideal work for you at this point? And most of the time you will find that it's probably working less than you had initially thought. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for most doctors, the difference between happiness and burnout is just a few days a month. You know, the first thing I tell a, a burned out doc is why don't you cut back to full time? You know, because so many docs are working past full time, mm-hmm. whether it's because there's not enough people to share the call with or whether it's just because it's really hard to turn down that two grand or three grand or four grand or whatever. They're making a shift. You know, it's I, I got to work that shift. I need the money. Yeah. You know, but optimizing for longevity, you know, will, will go a long way. And so get that extra help at home. If you're a dual physician couple, you can afford that. Get that help. Get a nanny. Get an au pair. You know spread some cash around and recognize yes it might mean you work a little bit longer but that's the whole point is that you're happy enough that you want to work a little bit longer so i wouldn't try to do everything at once and uh, try to optimize for longevity
2: cool great advice
3: yeah
0: that's a really great
2: viewpoint
3: yeah thank you
2: all right well evan we only have a few minutes left you want to you got any burning I'm, questions? I know I, you could go on forever. but I mean,
0: I think I've, I've done my fanboy part. I think, it, I think it's okay. <laughs> I think I'm good.
3: Okay.
2: okay. <laughs> Are
0: you... We
3: don't have to get into the weeds on whole life insurance or crypto assets or anything. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: I, I think we'll be okay.
2: Well, Jim, thank you so much. This has been delightful. I've loved getting to know you. Um, thank you so much for making the time.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the podcast and best of luck to you and your listeners. Thank you so much. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the Penny Lane podcast makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional or financial advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, the Penny Lane Podcast does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. The third party materials or content of any third party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Penny Lane Podcast. The Penny Lane Podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third party materials or on third party sites referenced in this podcast or the complete with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein.